Ecclesiastes, verses 4 through 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of God for us today. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and ask that you would speak to us through your word. God, we are so thankful for the gift of scripture that makes us wise unto salvation and Lord, we pray as we give attention with our minds and our hearts to your word, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to rightly handle and divide the word of truth. And Lord, we pray that you would use your word like a sword to, to pierce into our hearts and into our souls and to instruct us in paths of righteousness. So Lord, bless our time together in your word. Minister to your church, to your body, to your people today. Through your holy word, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has invited us into his personal quest to find the meaning of life. And if you've been with us over the last four or five weeks, uh, you've seen that Solomon is kind of looking everywhere at life. He's, he's looking at everything under the sun, he says, just really trying to discern and understand what is this all about? What is life all about? What is the meaning? He puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 13. He writes, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Solomon has left no stone unturned, 
no book unopened. He is looking at life under the sun, life as we're all living it, and he's exploring every different arena of life in an effort, again, to understand what is the meaning of life. He's trying to find meaning in the madness. Last week, we considered together the topics of of injustice and oppression. Solomon was looking at the law courts, the place that you would expect to find justice, the place that you would expect righteousness to kind of carry the day and rule. And when he looked there in the law courts, where people should be served justice, he found that injustice was there. He found that in the place where righteousness should be secure, in fact, he found wickedness. And what he saw in particular in the start of chapter 4 was he saw that the poor working class, the day laborers, were being oppressed cruelly and they were being exploited. And this causes Solomon now in the text before us today to turn his focus and his attention and his observations on the business sector of society. Here's what he says in verse 4. Of chapter 4, he writes, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. With the use of hyperbole, here in verse 4, Solomon observes that one driving motivator to excel in our work is envy of other people. We envy their position, we envy their status. We envy their wealth, we envy their possessions, and we say, hey, I want some of that for myself. And so we work really hard and we try to get more skill and get better at what we do. Because we want to get ahead of others, this means that we've got to work more hours. It means that we have to have more degrees and more credentials. It means that we have to make more connections Rather than staying in our lane, we compare ourselves to the person in the lane next to us. Now church, listen, comparison is the thief of contentment. Comparison is the thief of contentment. You'll never be a satisfied person if you're constantly looking at what other people have and comparing your life against yours. And never has this been easier than in the day and age of social media where we get to look at everybody else's life out there. You can follow celebrities, you can follow the rich and the famous and the powerful, and you can walk along in their daily life and we go, man, my life stinks, their life is awesome. This will kill any attempt in your life to have contentment. H.L. Mencken, the prominent American journalist of the last century, once quipped that the happy man is the one who makes $100 more than his wife's sister's husband. What is it about us that we want to outdo our neighbors and we want to look good in front of them? A number of years ago, a young businessman had just started his own company. So he rented this beautiful office space and he had it furnished with all this high-end furniture. Sitting there in his office, he saw a man enter into the outer office area And so wanting to appear to be a big success, the businessman picks up his phone and he starts to pretend that he's working on a big deal. So he threw around these huge figures and he made these giant commitments. Finally, he hangs up his phone and he asks the visitor, can I help you? 
The man says, yeah, I've come to activate your phone lines. Rather than being content with what we've been given and focusing our our attention on what's before us, we humans are often motivated by envy of other people. But this is not the pathway to happiness. Sonia Lubomirsky, who's a psychology professor at the University of California, Riverside, has found in her research that happy people are not bothered by the success of others. She says that when she asked less happy people who they compared themselves to, they went on and on and on and on. Whereas when she asked happy people who they compared themselves to, she reports that they didn't even know what she was talking about. In other words, the truly happy, the truly content are not busy looking at what other people have got going on. They're enjoying the things that they have. Again, comparison is the thief of happiness and contentment. And if that's true, that comparison is the thief of contentment, then it must also be true that contentment is the antidote to comparison. If we could just somehow learn to be a content people, we would stop worrying about what our neighbor has. We wouldn't be comparing ourselves and striving after what they've got. And it's no coincidence then that contentment is what Solomon calls us to next here in chapter 4. But first he's going to warn us against laziness. And the reason for that is he knows that there might be some people who draw the false conclusion that if so much of our labor is motivated by envy, then maybe we just shouldn't work at all. Maybe work in and of itself is bad. Maybe we should live a life of ease and laziness. And Solomon is going to say that is not the way forward. Look at what he writes in verse 5. He says, It's the fool who folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Graphic description for sure, but it's a powerful one. The idea of folding your hands, this is the posture of rest. Think about kind of if you're laying on your hammock, you just kind of have your hands folded over the front here. It's the posture of rest. And Solomon is saying that laziness is going to bring about poverty in your life. He says the same thing over in the book of Proverbs, which he wrote. This is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Solomon writes, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So to avoid these two extremes, the overly driven person who wants to outdo his neighbors, or the lazy person with zero ambition who comes to poverty and ruin, Solomon advises a life of contentment that is rooted in balance. He puts it this way in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Here's how the New International Version translates this verse. Better one handful with tranquility than two hands full of toil and chasing after the wind. What is he saying? He's saying, look, it is far better to have little, to have few things. He describes it as one handful. If you can have peace and tranquility, then to have much, to have two handfuls, but be caught up in the rat race. 
To be the person who, in an effort to get so much, is overworking and underperforming in other areas of life. Areas like rest, areas like spiritual growth, areas like relationships with other people. Solomon is advocating for a life of contentment that is rooted in balance. So the question then becomes, how do we attain or how do we achieve true contentment? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 4 that he found, listen, the secret of contentment. This is Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, undoubtedly, Philippians 4.13 is one of the most popular Bible verses among Christians. Specifically, it's really popular among athletes. I've noticed that. In fact, a lot of times they have it like tattooed on their bodies. It's like their theme verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I guess the problem, though, is when the guy on the other side of the ball has that verse tattooed to his arm as well. Now it's a toss-up. Who has more strength coming from Christ to win the game? In context, he isn't saying that you can literally do anything you want to do now because you're a Christian. That you can just accomplish anything in life because you're a follower of Jesus. The all things in Philippians 4.13 is restricted by the context. What is the context? Well, the Apostle Paul is in prison. And he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And in verse, or the verses right above this, he's saying, how thankful he is, how grateful that he is that they are concerned as a church about his physical needs. In fact, they're supporting him because in prison back in those days, your tax dollars didn't take care of prisoners. They were supported by the generosity of family and friends. And he's saying, thank you. I'm so blessed that you're concerned for me. But he says, look, even though you're taking care of some of my needs, I'm actually really not in need because I have found the secret to contentment. And what is it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, Paul is saying, in Jesus, we have sufficient grace and power to experience contentment no matter what is going on in our lives. How so? Well, because what Jesus offers us cannot be taken away from us by anything or anyone in this life. By faith, Jesus offers you forgiveness of your sins through his death on the cross. And he offers us new resurrection life in him. He offers us his constant presence. And he offers us eternal life. Nothing can change that. And so for Paul sitting in a prison where he is deprived of food, he's deprived of warm clothing, he can say, even in these terrible circumstances, guess what? I find contentment. Because in Christ, my future is secure. In Christ, my best days are always ahead of me. This is where true contentment comes from. 
Well, in the next verses, Solomon is going to illustrate the point that he has just made. This point that having less with peace and harmony is better than having more but being caught up in the rat race and missing out on what's really important in life. Look at verse 7 again. Solomon writes, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Memoirs of the Workaholic. Solomon here describes the man who works so much that he lives a life of isolation. He's a loner. He has no friends. He has no family. It's just him and his work. But that's okay, he thinks. He looks at his life and he says, look, I don't really have time for these people anyway. I work super late into the evening. I have all this business travel. I get up early in the morning to make a few trades when the market opens. Where would family fit in anyway? Maybe I'll get around to those things someday. But right now, what is making me happy is money, money, money. He's a regular old Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember Scrooge in Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. Scrooge does not have family. He was focused solely on money. He worked super late. He treated his employee terribly. And he's presented by Dickens as being completely miserable. Solomon, as he observes a Scrooge in his own time and place, comes to the same conclusion. He notices that without relationships, all the money in the world is an unhappy business. It's a deprivation of pleasure. David Futrell, who was a former staff writer for Money Magazine, in an article that he wrote for Time Magazine on the subject of happiness, wrote this, Friends are a mighty elixir. One secret of happiness, people, end quote. Relationships matter. You only get to chapter two of the Bible, and if you haven't noticed, it's a really long book. You only get to chapter 2 in Genesis before you realize that human beings were designed to live in community. Here's Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now this is so profound because the man, Adam, was not alone. He was in relationship with God uninterrupted fellowship with God, but even in that state, God is saying there is still something that is not good. He needs human interaction. He needs human companionship. We were created for community. And so as God observes this need, he creates a spouse for him and begins community on earth. We were created for community. This is why solitary confinement is such a severe punishment. To be completely cut off from other human interaction shrinks a person's soul and makes them a little bit less human. We were designed to exist day in and day out in relationship with other people. In that way, we are very much like the God who created us. You don't even get through chapter one of the Bible without discovering that God exists in community. Here's Genesis 1.26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The fact that the one true God is a triune God means that he has always existed in community. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in relationship with one another. Therefore, Solomon writes in verse 9, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Relationships matter. Why are two better than one? Well, for many reasons. He's going to give you a few that he can think of, starting in verse 9. One is that having a companion makes you more profitable and it makes your work easier. Right? If you're doing a job and you've got somebody else there to shoulder some of the load, to contribute their ideas, it makes you better at the work that you're doing and oftentimes more profitable. In verse 10, he talks about how a companion is there to support you when you fall down or really to support you in any area of life. In verse 11, he explains that a companion strengthens you through difficulties. He gives the illustration of a cold night. Back then, people would travel and they would hardly ever travel alone because it was dangerous. And on those cold nights in the desert, to have a companion to lay down next to throughout the night was a source of warmth and strength. In verse 12, he explains that a companion is there to protect you from danger. Again, he likely has a traveler in mind as he's writing this. And if you're traveling alone through the Judean wilderness in the evening, you are ready, kind of almost expecting to be attacked by robbers and people who are going to take advantage of you. But if you travel in a group, if you have companions, they're there to protect you and to ward off attacks. And as he finishes in verse 12, he reasons this way. He says, well, look, if two are better than one, then guess what? Three are better than two. The story is told of a shipwreck in which there were only three survivors. The three men were able to float on debris to an uninhabited island. Together, they managed to survive for several months. And even though they were strangers when this all began, they actually forged really close friendships over those months of common hardship and suffering. One day, they discovered an old bottle inside a cave. And upon opening it, a genie appeared to them. This is a true story, by the way. And he said this, I have been stuck in this bottle for hundreds of years. For releasing me, I'm going to give each of you one wish. The first guy immediately spoke up. He said, I want to go back to my wife and my children. He was immediately teleported home. The second guy could think of nothing better. So he said, I too want to go back to my family and my friends. And he was immediately teleported back home. All alone, the third guy sat there and thought to himself for a moment. And then he said, well, I don't have anyone back at home, so I just want my friends back. Relationships matter. We cannot stress this enough. It is without question that the unbridled individualism in the modern West has fractured community. Therefore, our well-being is dependent on recovering a strong sense of community. Many that are living around us every single day, maybe people that you work with, are longing for and are desperate for meaningful relationships with others. So if you think about that, then as a church, 
If we hope to be a countercultural witness to the society around us, we have to resist the temptation to just look out for number one, resist the temptation to treat the church as consumers, only sitting back asking, what am I getting out of this? What do I get out of this? And instead, we have to commit to fully investing ourselves in the lives of one another. Well, Daniel, what does that look like? Well, that's a big question. But a great starting place is church membership. Because by holding each other accountable to living out our church covenant, this would go a long way. If you read the church covenant of Apostles Church, it's very others-oriented. It's calling for a life that is committed to the well-being, not just of yourself, not just of your own family, but of this church family where we're praying for one another, where we're serving one another, where we're meeting the needs of one another, where we're remaining faithfully committed to each other and watching over one another's well-being. Of course, church is not the only place to find companionship. In fact, it's not even the primary place. In Scripture, the primary place to find companionship is the family. But this too has fallen on hard times in the modern West. So we would do well as a church to focus our energy and attention on family, on building healthy families, building strong nuclear families, healthy marriages, healthy parenting, healthy children. This is part of the reason why our philosophy of ministry at Apostles is very streamlined. If you haven't noticed, we don't do a lot as a church beyond Sunday and a couple of other things. We're very streamlined. And this is not because we're lazy. This is not because we can't think of a thousand things that we all could do to occupy ourselves. It's because we don't want you here at the church four and five and six times a week doing ministry. We want you to be attentive to and engaged with your own family. Considering how might I love and serve and give myself to my spouse. Being intentionally engaged and involved in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. Investing in family. That matters. And we have to make that a priority. Relationships matter. And God, in his grace, is not content with people living their lives in isolation. At the incarnation, Jesus came to this earth to reconcile sinful people back to their Father in heaven, to bring them back into right relationship with God, to eliminate our isolation. The Bible teaches that through our sin, you and I were separated from and alienated from God. But Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, paid for sin and opened up his life to the world. And anyone who places their faith and their trust in Jesus has their sin removed and is brought into fellowship with the Father through the Son. And nothing can change that. Therefore, Jesus could promise us that put our faith in him that he would never leave us or forsake us. And he would promise us that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would actually dwell within us and he would be a constant companion and counselor. Not only this, not only are we reconciled to God through Christ, but in Christ we are given a brand new family on earth, a spiritual family called the local church. The people to your left, the people to your right. 
And in the church, we have companionship and we have community with our brothers and sisters. What a priceless gift. Think of it this way. Jesus sacrificed his constant fellowship in the Trinity when he was forsaken and where he experienced rejection on the cross so that you and I would never be alone again. It's amazing. Well, in the remaining verses in chapter 4, Solomon is going to make one final observation about career before he changes subjects completely and talks about religion, which we'll get to next week. What he sees in these final verses is that status and advancement are ultimately meaningless too. So if you look to that, to career advancement and to status in front of people, as the place that you think you're going to derive meaning and happiness and satisfaction in your life, Solomon is going to tell you, once again, as he's been saying in this letter, that that is grasping after the wind. In verse 13, he writes, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Oftentimes, when people make it to the top, they become proud and insufferable. They stop listening to other people. They think that they've got it all figured out. Hey, I got on top because I understand how things work. And they no longer are willing to listen or take advice. They think they have it all figured out. And Solomon calls a person like that a fool. Better, he writes, to be poor and young, if you're wise, than to be rich and old, if you're a fool. This young man in the story that he tells here, who was full of wisdom, was able to rise all the way to the top. He himself became the king in the kingdom and replaced the guy who was on top. And there's no mention of him becoming foolish and proud and insufferable. But, listen, that doesn't mean that advancement to the top position is ultimately meaningful. Solomon sees it from a different angle. Although, according to verse 16... When he became king, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. There would come a point when those who come later will not rejoice in him. He's saying, look, when he rose to the top, when this young, wise, poor guy became the king, there was no end to the masses of people who followed him, who were singing his praises when he became king. But he says there would come a point when those who would come later would not rejoice in him. Translation, people are fickle. When you're popular and powerful, it feels like you're on top of the world. And it feels quite satisfying, to be honest. But eventually, people move on. Your influence lessens. There's a newer, younger, smarter, more attractive, better equipped person that comes into the company, comes into the organization, and is the new envy of everybody else. And everyone is singing their praises. Remember when Saul became king. And all of Israel was singing his praises. And he was head and shoulders above the rest. And he was handsome. And he was strong. And the people were so happy that they had their king. But fast forward a few years and Saul hears a song being sung out in the streets. And all the common people are saying, in song, they're saying, Saul slayed his thousands, but David has slayed his tens of thousands. And now the people's hearts are turning toward this young shepherd boy named David, and Saul becomes envious. 
and resentful and he comes after David. Well, guess what? That's the way of every person who rises to a place of prominence and power. You're not going to stay there forever. Getting on top only lasts for a brief period of time and eventually the 2.0 version comes along and everybody rallies around them. And then what's left for you? You're just looking in the rearview mirror because the best days of your life are behind you. So Solomon says, listen, this is vanity. This is like grasping at the wind. If you think that's where it's going to come from, that's, that's what, what's going to deliver what you really need out of life and what you were created to experience out of life, he's saying it's like grasping after wind. For Solomon, career advancement and status and celebrity will never deliver what you need or what you were created for. So listen, rather than expending yourself and all of the energy and all of the skills that God has given you in your life to try to acquire status in the eyes of people, learn to rest in the infinitely greater and eternal status that is already yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what status is that, Daniel? Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. He writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? He says, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus gives us an irrevocable status. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God, a daughter or son of God, and you become a joint heir with Christ, the true son, of all the riches that are his in his father's kingdom. Jesus sacrificed his glory at the incarnation so that you could be given this new status. This is why on the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed this prayer to his father in the garden. This is John 17, 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a priceless gift that Jesus has given to us. We become by faith what he is by nature, sons and daughters of God. Could there be any higher status than that? Jesus allows you to be royalty in the only kingdom that will live on for eternity. Rest in that. Well, this morning we have followed Solomon on a journey of exploration into the business sector. And he's considered career, contentment, and companionship. And he's shown us that advancing career at any cost is a recipe for disaster. So instead, what he's advocating for you and for me, people who desire to live lives that are wise, is that we ought to work hard and we ought to work with skill, but we need to work in ways that allow balance and harmony in our lives. We need to work in ways that demonstrate a heart of contentment and that allow us to give ourselves to the most important things in life, namely relationships. And as we've seen this morning, the way to do that is by marinating our minds and our hearts in the immense and eternal riches that are ours in Christ. 
Because if we'll do that, we'll find that our hearts are so satisfied and so full that the temptation to overvalue things like career or money or status will grow weaker and weaker. May God grant us a grander vision of the glory of Christ this morning to satisfy our heartfelt longings in this upcoming week. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the amazing status that we have been given in Christ. We are so thankful that in Christ, what was lost in the garden by our first parents has been recovered. The intimacy and the relationship with the God who created us, from whom we experience life and life everlasting. And not only is that recovered for us, but also relationships with one another that are based on truth and intimacy and love. Lord, we're so thankful for this amazing gift that you have secured for us, the gift of companionship. Lord, we're so thankful as well for the perspective that we're given in your word. We live in a society that is so overly driven. It's an achievement society. It's a society that values work and career and status and advancement in some ways above all else. It's about what you become and how much you have and the power and the influence that you exert. But Lord, we realize that this is a trap, that this is a dead-end game, and that life is about more than who we are in the eyes of other people. That life is about more than what we can attain or what we can achieve or what we can show off in the eyes of other people. Life is about relationships with the people you've put in our lives, our families, our friends, our church family, our neighbors. And life is about relationship with you, the one true God. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would reorient our hearts for another week of life under the sun so that we might not make the mistake of falling into the temptation this week of looking to find the meaning, the satisfaction, really for finding the life in those things that can only be found in and through you. So help us, God. We need you this week. And we love you and we worship you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, family, let's stand to our feet as we close now in another song of worship.